Welcome back to another episode of the Gifted Performance Podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to like the video and subscribe for future content. For more information about our one-on-one coaching and other training or nutrition options, visit giftedperformance.com. Our newest feature, the Gifted Express, offers premium programming for bodybuilders, powerlifters, Olympic weightlifters, and lifestyle clients for only $30 a month. Enjoy the video. We'll see you on the next one. And as always, stay gifted. Welcome back. Another Q&A episode of the GPP answering questions that give you the knowledge and practical takeaway to improve your own general physical preparedness. The four familiar faces here. We got Paul. Hi. Didn't, you, could, you didn't even recognize him. Take, his, take the glasses off again. One more time. Take them off. Who the fuck yeah, is that? It's Put a him new on. Guest, I think maybe. But, oh, whoa! Who <laughs> whoa. is this guy? Yeah, honorary <laughs> guest here checking in. <laughs> <laughs> Just and kidding. of course we've got Jay. Whoa, Paul's back. Oh man, that, was, that got scary there for a second. I didn't know who that guy was. We got Jason, the Holt. How you doing? Ah, uh, you Current, know I can't complain. Uh, as of recording this, current leader in the fantasy football league. Would you like to make any official statements? Uh, you just wish you, are we you knew what a corn dog tasted like, right? You're like, fuck! I've had a corn. I just want a corn dog. It's been so long. Are we surprised? I told you guys I came here to uh, build a website and win the fantasy football league. And that's it. And you're all out of websites to build. <laughs> I'm all out of websites. To build. <laughs> and then Dom. Speaking of corn dogs, Dom, your daughter. She owes us 18 corn dogs. What's my daughter? Yes. <laughs> you have to claim her. <laughs> um. I, dude, I don't know. She's she's flaking hard on those. Man, yeah. shout she out to have already, she, Dude, by the time she got done complaining, she could have finished five of them. Easily. Yeah, text Easily. her like after this and just tell her you're just so disappointed in her. Not mad. Disgrace. Just disappointed. disappointed. Just Lee, she I asked know me you. to come watch in case she like dies or something. Like, no, <laughs> text her and tell her you're ashamed of her. Oh, that'll be yeah, sad. I know. That's the I point. Think that Show up for them corn we, dogs, Jessly. Show up mm, for them corn dogs. Yeah, keep showing up to eat your corn dogs all right let's hit these questions here our first question of the day and it is an absolute s tier pumper juicer of a question it comes from at prince underscore disney the heir to the disney throne so i don't even know why this guy cares about training because he's going to be so rich one day um he asks how much would you vary volume progression in someone who trains to failure from the start of a mesocycle versus someone who begins a meso training to three to four RIR. So two different individuals here. One individual A, lifter A, starts their mesocycle training to failure and progresses somehow. Uh, and then there is lifter B, who begins the meso training to three to five RIR, and I'm assuming that their progression model is descending reps in reserve. So starting at three to five RIR, working your way down to zero to one RIR. So how would you vary the volume progression between lifter A and lifter B? Failure Fred and RIR Randy. That got my adrenaline going. I don't know if it's all the stems or like my heart rate. Um, no, but I think like the first question we would have to ask ourselves would be why, why would it be different? Right? So like theoretically, and this is theoretically, I don't even necessarily agree with what I'm about to say, but theoretically, like what, what is the advantage of training to failure? Hopefully to try and get, uh, 
a similar stimulus or a really good stimulus with fewer sets than shy of failure. That's like literally yeah. the only reason. The only potential, maybe theoretical advantage is to try and get a good stimulus and less sets. So when we think of it that way, it, it really shouldn't be different, right? It, it would be the same if you needed to escalate sets, which is a whole nother question is, do we even need to do that? Do we need to progress number of sets, right? But like, if if you were going to compare the two, it, it should, in theory, be similar, just to a smaller scale, right? Does that make sense? So, so theoretically, for the person who trains to failure, what is the volume progression for them? What is what is the progression model for someone who is training to failure from the start of a mesocycle? Because for someone who's using RIR, you can use descending RIRs and add one to two reps per set and then that provides your volume progression are we adding sets for the person to failure i mean i don't know it's kind of that's a so weird I, question i don't have an answer for that but it's interesting that you bring that up because you do end up losing a tool of of overloading progressively right when you take every single set to failure. So that really only leaves you with, you know, you can add load, but then you do lose your out. reps will come down. Yeah. And then, um, you, so then, yeah, like adding, adding sets would kind of, if, if you felt like you needed to increase your volume and I guess it depends on which definition of volume you're using. You know, because just because sets come down, if, if you're counting volume by effective reps or effective volume, your, your effective reps and volume may not be coming down. Right. Yeah. I almost like, I have a client I do this with. He doesn't like using RIR to like, not that he doesn't like using it. He doesn't like, like the fours, the fives, like, you know, intro week stuff. Um, so like his mesocycle just starts at one to two. And which I guess, yeah, I mean, he doesn't start training to failure, but he's starting at a one to two RIR. And then like the next week, I just tell him to beat uh, reps if he can and get closer to one than two. And then the third week will increase load a little bit, but that's three weeks of the same volume, like a uh, set volume. That's the same set volume for three weeks. And then the fourth week, he'll push to quote unquote failure and that if I feel the need to add volume through sets, I'll give him a back off set at the end of all those failure sets where he kind of can just drop load a little bit and go a little bit further. But that's, but I think Paul makes a good point. Cause like, in my opinion, if you're training to failure so much and to true failure, you really shouldn't need to increase volume that much over the course of that time. But then like you have two different aspects of progressive overload that you can't use because one, you might not be able to handle more volume because if you're truly trained to failure, you might just be battered from it. You're not going to get effective reps. If you do another set, it might just turn into junk volume at that point. And then, and then, you know, we can't, if failure is where we're going, then there's no way to control that too. That is it. Th I think that's a really good point that you brought up 
is that if you are taking all of your sets to failure, you only have so much room for good volume or effective volume because more quickly you are going to run into that point of diminishing returns where adding an extra set is junk volume. Yeah. I just think <clears throat> how long is this mesocycle going to be comparatively between both protocols? Yeah. I feel like if you're training to failure, <clears throat> how much of that mesocycle is going to be decent volume? Like you guys brought up, like eventually it's probably going to be pretty shitty towards the end. Oh, we didn't even make it the 10 minutes. <sighs> Dang it. <clears throat> That's my we'll fault. bleep that out. Start That's, all over. It's again. in the Bible. That's not a bad word. Okay. Oh yeah. True. <laughs> That's true. That's true. We're big. We're big Bible thumpers here at the Gift of Performance podcast. Absolutely, absolutely. But uh, I think how long is this? Just because you, you you can't really vary volume that much, unless, which is often the case, the person says they're training to failure, but they're really not training to failure. Um, that's also something to kind of take into play is or take into account is often when someone says they're training to fail, like is there somebody there catching the bar for them or catching the dumbbell because they've failed or are they right before most of the time when someone says they're training to failure, they're really training to like one RAR because they're often training if, by themselves. If that, yeah, if that, <clears throat> cause we all go through that same progression where we kind of go, Oh shit, this is heavy. See, I did it again, but it's in the Bible. Um, but you know, we, we kind of think I'm getting close to failure. failure. This is starting to get heavy and we stop. And even the research kind of shows this. Like most people stop far before they've actually even gotten close to failure. So that would be my first question is often you can probably actually vary volume a little bit because the person's really not training to failure. Someone that's truly training to failure probably won't survive two or three weeks of making any actual progress because they're just banging their head up against a wall. For most, I would say that failure probably means like technical failure as opposed to like two true concentric like failure. Like Maybe not even unable. that. Maybe tr we should call it training to high discomfort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I like oh, that. this is scary. <laughs> I like that. Last week we talked about intent. We're creating our own word now, training to high levels of discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> that's the new yeah, t-shirt like, I, I tell people just like mechanical failure like once your form goes to shit why even bother doing another rep after that point so even like the most hardcore advocates of training to failure on like you can check them so easily like on their leg day like when you do a set of squats, are you getting pinned at the bottom on each set? You're doing five sets of squats to failure, and you're getting pinned at the bottom at the end of every single one of those sets. The leg press is coming crashing down on you because you, you train to true fail. You're getting stuck at the bottom. Like, you're doing leg extensions until you literally cannot move your quads anymore. You're not truly training to, to, to failure there. And you probably shouldn't because that would be silly. You would break a lot of barbells, and you might get kicked out of Zoo Health Club of Oviedo. People don't forget. <laughs> to the owner of Zoo Health Club of Oviedo, when you were stuck in the parking lot and your car needed a jump, I came to rescue you. I pulled out the jumper cables, and I helped you. And then a few weeks later, you told me to never return to your gym again. People don't forget. <laughs> so... Uh... I, but to answer this guy's question, I'll tell them what I do with my own training. And for some of my clients, I, I do something a little different. For some of them, I, I do stuff that's very similar to mine. But I, uh, for myself, I don't escalate sets um, 
for most body parts. And it's kind of crazy, right? Like this question was asked generally, but I treat different body parts differently. Crazy, right? Novel concept. Um, but not every single muscle group would be the same or the, that you might treat the same with your volume, but, um, I don't believe you, <laughs> but so I have like, for most of my body parts, I have my intro week, right? Which is lower volume. And then after that, I go to my normal static volume that I just maintain for the block. Now, what I'll do is for periods of time, I will pick a body part or maybe two, maybe like two small body parts or one big body part. And I will escalate that volume over ranges. So like, let's say block one, the range is eight to 10, 11 sets, a very small um, increase over a training week. And I see how I handle that, handle it well. Okay, next block, um, you know, 10 to 12, 13, whatever. Next block, and, and I incrementally do that to see if I can find a range of a volume, a, a higher range of volume that I can maintain without getting decrements in performance. And over that process, sort of reflect back on, on those various blocks of training um, and looking at how well my load and rep progression went. Does that make sense? Can I get a point of clarification? Yeah. Um, when you say you reflect back on the block and it went well, yeah. what, what kind of variables are you looking at to quantify it went well? Yeah, dude. So my load increases are fairly fixed, right? So I, I'm looking at like how well my rep progression went essentially. Okay. Yeah. So Dom, I think a lot of the training that you write is similar to Paul's. Do you have any, uh, kind of like differentiators between how you write your progression and then Jay, I'm coming to you next. Uh, Go to Jay. My dog's going nuts. Char Charlie, how do you progress? Oh, you add sets? Oh, Charlie, you insane dog. Jay, what's your progression model look like? Uh, it probably sounds fairly similar to what Paul said, but usually I'll, I'll kind of start on the low end, um, and then I'll kind of – I'm paying really close attention to how the individual sort of increases – repetitions over time. So with a specific load, so I don't really like to mess with load too much and still, unless they like completely blow through. So if I give them say a hundred kilo, hundred pounds, and then all of a sudden they do like, you know, 30 repetitions, that means it's time to increase load because that we're getting a bit outside of what, uh, the Schoenfeld study <laughs> said would be <laughs> appropriate, uh, with regards to repetitions and hypertrophy. So then I might adjust load and it really depends on the individual. Some people just tend to tolerate more volume, especially in specific body parts and increasing volume, uh, from week to week. It's kind of a case specific thing. I don't do well with increasing sets by volume, but that's also because I'm old and I've already been through that. Um, so I don't tolerate that very well. I basically have a set number of repetition or set <clears throat> number of sets that I'll perform per body part. And that's just over time of paying attention to progress. So I kind of have a set number, but if I get some, one of these young Thundercats, I can just handle, you know, they have these joints that are made out of plastic. Still, they can do whatever they want. Those people, I may push them a little bit week to week, especially if their, their performance looks something like a hundred pounds, uh, 20, 19, 
16, then I go, okay, they can probably tolerate another set as opposed to increasing load. Because I mean, we all can probably agree as you increase load, you also increase the chance of potential injury. So I, I would much rather increase set volume in some instances as opposed to load. Dude, I can dig that. I, uh, really like one thing you said that, and it reminded me of two things. Only um, one. Uh, the rest was shit. But no, 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 that, that you start low. And that's something I try to get across to people or like people that ask me advice on coaching or training um, is to start at the low end. Like always start there because if you just pick some random high number of sets, things don't go well. You have no idea where to go from there. Do I go up? Do I go down? But if you start low, there's only one direction you can go, right? Up. Yeah. And uh, remember when uh, there was a... <clears throat> Uh, a semi-famous doctor whose name I, I will not bring up, but he said that you had to increase sets from meso to mesocycle so somewhere between 10 and 20. And I think we probably all did that experiment on ourselves yeah. and probably either saw a lot of aches and pains and not a ton of progress when you're increasing 35. every single body part. Like to uh, 35, well, sets. 35 sets of traps per week. Baby. I'll tell you what the problem is. Like it, it worked okay for me. It, it didn't not work or whatever, but well, it works. I never, oh, I yeah, never figured out. I never figured out the amount of volume I needed ever. I had no idea. I was just mindlessly going through these giant jumps and number of sets. And, uh, you don't learn anything about yourself. And that's why I say when I do pick that one or two body parts that I escalate volume on that I, I use very narrow ranges, you know, two or three sets two maybe four over a block, maybe. And sometimes I'm like, Oh, that went well. Let me try it one more time before I go up. Right. So I actually have some data, you know, cause what can you base off of just four weeks? And that actually takes me back to, you asked me what, I reflect back on there actually is a little more like I like to do estimated one R RMs, which are uh, really big for me. And then along with the rep counts, so sometimes it's just intuitive. Like you can just look at numbers and RIR and see how they compare over previous weeks. But, um, and then I'll also sort of try my best to look at circumference measures but that gets really hairy, right? Cause did we just, did circumference go up because we just gained a little bit of fat, you know, did it go up for other reasons that we don't really talk about here on this podcast? And then like, um, did it go up, uh, or, uh, you know, if it did go up and it was because of muscle, it wasn't, it probably wasn't what I was doing in just the last like two to four weeks. That was like the yeah. culmination and the realization of like, you know, eight, 16, you know, weeks of slowly, gradually adding small amounts of tissue. I said it tissue tissues. Gross. Ugh. Dom, you got anything to add? Um, I like, uh, I like programming more frequency, so I'll keep like stuff two, three sets for a while, but they'll just be doing it a bit more frequently. Like tricep movements, bicep movements, rear delt movements, side, you know, medial delt stuff. Um, I like to program a bit more frequently, uh, but the, I get some kick. I get some. I get some pushback from clients because I, it's, a lot of people don't understand why we're programming the way we program. But then they start complaining that it's boring, or they don't even feel like they're working out. Um, so I've had to try to work with that. 
for some people I'll do later in the mezzo, like week three, week four, like a, maybe one or two sets to like two to three RIR and then give them a set at like one RIR and then just let them like push a little bit harder that they want. Um, but that was like one thing that I had to start trying to do because people were just like, all oh, these, my week one and two are so low in sets. Like, I don't even feel like I'm working out and I'm like, oh, well, uh, maybe you're not training with intent. <laughs> well, I mean like, <laughs> dude, I feel like that's a new client thing. But after you have a client clients for a while, I think they really come to appreciate intro weeks. Yeah, for yeah. sure. But getting over that and first hurdle can be tough. Yeah. One thing that I've dealt with clients too, is like, they're like, I, I don't know how to combat the, I don't enjoy RIR training. I think I do better with failure training, but then like, I'll see how they claim they're training to failure. And I'm like, you're just doing RIR without <laughs> saying you're doing RIR. Well, and that's just calling it something that you like better. <laughs> that, that's what I'm going to do next time. Like somebody d hits me with that as a new client, which I haven't gotten in a really long time, to be honest, um, is I, I'm just going to say, you know what? Fine. Fuck it. Let's not make progress for the next four to eight weeks. And I'm just going to give them the training log and we're going to track it. And I'm going to be like, Hey, watch this. We're going to do RIR training and we're going to watch their numbers fucking skyrocket. And be like, wow, Paul, yeah. you'd be a great, you'd be a great mother bird. Oh, you think you can fucking fly? You think you can fly? Well, <laughs> see ya. Kick you out of the nest. Good luck. No, here's the, here's what you give them when they push back. I feel like I'm not doing enough. You say, okay, the next time you have a headache, how many Advil are you going to grab? They're going to be like, oh, I'm going to grab two. You say, well, why didn't you grab 30? <laughs> like, 30 would also do the job. 30 is so much of a cooler number than two. Like all the normies, the normal people, gen pop losers, they take two Advil. You're a fucking hardcore bodybuilder. You take 30 of them bitches. Lose the like, headache, insane. get a liver like, Yeah. <laughs> Same thing with training. If you could do less, why not just do less for as long as possible? Howdy, Gifted Gang. We hope you're enjoying the episode so far. If you've been thinking about joining the Gifted Performance team but not sure one-on-one -on -one coaching is right for you, you should give the Gifted Express a try. The Gifted Express is our automated coaching feature that provides training guidance for bodybuilders, Olympic weightlifters, powerlifters, and lifestyle clients. For only a dollar a day, you can get constantly varied, always progressed training. Sign up today by clicking the link in the show notes below. Now back to today's show. So here's another one, another question that uh, I think all of us have gotten some. It's funny to see people come around on this one. Let's just say we were we were here on the tempo shit before everybody else was. Everyone was talking shit about tempo. At uh, eleven dot lifts asks, do you use tempo work on the control of the movement technique? It's just it's an interestingly worded question. My interpretation of it is, do you use tempo? to teach people movement technique is that no, the no, no. exclusive oh, I, I think i think it's do you use tempo to help somebody work on how they can, can control dude movement? you yeah. guys got this all fucked up you know that part of the movement that you don't control at all all of it you just fucking start to finish <laughs> <laughs> um all right so do you use tempo to work on basically movement technique or are there other reasons that you might use tempo in your programming like tempo 100 percent definitely helps you improve your technique let's just let's put that out there to start with moving slower will help your 
dumb brain learn how to move correctly. What are the other applications of tempo in hypertrophy training? Um, so, okay. For first off, the movement technique, like you said, and then I think there's pretty good literature that shows um, different motor units activating in different parts of a movement. So if we want to kind of emphasize on like strengthening a lengthened position and helping recruit more fibers for that, we'd put, you know, more emphasis on a negative um, because we know that motor units, it's not just A to B, it's they activate different parts of the movement. So that's why we can utilize tempos for that. Um, I think it. I think that control goes a little bit further than just getting movement technique down. I think adding tempo in for, you know, just teaching somebody how to train with tempo makes their non-tempo assigned movements a lot better too. Because I'm to the point where I'm making my training, I'm not even putting tempos down because I just do it. I just do tempos now because it's gotten, I've gotten so used to it. And I think it's good too for people to, you know, even like like lateral raises and just teaching them to hold for a second and not just, you know, flap their arms like wings. It gets people to um, pay attention to parts of the lift that they might have overlooked before. Yeah. yeah. I um, like to use it for, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. no, you, you can go. I, I talk too much. <laughs> Very true. Um, I think this, and this is no disrespect to any specific competitors at all, but usually there's a specific division in which their lower body is often not judged as much as their Men's entire bikini. Right. So, um, <laughs> and what I've noticed is those competitors typically don't enjoy leg training. So to give them a a structure within their program that involves increasing load from week to week. They tend to be, that's when I get reports back of, you know, uh, this ache and pain is coming up or this happens, or I missed this entire workout or I cut it short because I had to do this other thing or those excuses tend to come right around that leg day. So often what I'll do is kind of cut the load by a good amount and then give them tempo. So then they kind of see it as, Oh, it's not as intimidating as it was before because the load is less, but that they can get in some quality work at the same time. So it's a kind of a way of like my ninja in ninjing them. My ninja, my ninja. Can I use that? Yeah. My ninjing, my, my ninjing, uh, them into Would getting in some quality. <laughs> me and my ninjings, my ninjies, uh, <laughs> getting in some, getting in some quality work, uh, you know, in keeping them away from the high load stuff, but still getting in some work. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but sure. I think that's my but. favorite application of tempo is it's like that rate limiter that like stops them from adding so much weight to the bar while still providing a good stimulus. So it's like a, it's like yeah, a but even like tempo, like with, sorry, but like even with that, like, do you know how many times I've had to ask for a video? And I'm like, dude, do you count? Oh, yeah. Like, do you think that's actually three seconds? Three, one, two, three. <laughs> Three-second eccentrics get faster from week to week. Yeah. It's like week four, a three-second eccentric is just like, I'm going to drop this bar on my chest. <laughs> but I think we've all been there. Like, in your head, you're like, three, one, two, two, one. And you're like, oh, God, just get me out of here. Like, my legs are going to fall off. Um, yeah, that's the common feedback on the videos that people send me. It felt like three seconds. It looks like I'm one sure second. It, I'm sure it did. Yeah. 
So I won't recap on any of that because y'all hit some good points. The only one that fresh comes out of my mind off the top of my head would be uh, like longevity. And um, so, yeah, uh, just and also sometimes using tempos and longer eccentrics and stuff can be therapeutic for certain, I guess, like, uh, you know, nagging aches and injuries, little ones like elbow tendonitis and stuff. You know, like tricep extensions and stuff like that. So, yeah, just a way to kind of keep people training with a lighter load and then potentially just give little things time to uh, feel better. Maybe even I think Dr. Mike, the the real Dr. Mike, Dr. Mike Taylor, the one and only Dr. Mike in our lives, um, I think he would agree with that. There's plenty of good research that shows that extended eccentrics are going to be beneficial for remodeling connective tissue, joints, tendons, ligaments, that kind of stuff. Oh, and then one last thing, uh, potentially mind-muscle connection as a little factor. It could be helpful for getting that for certain body parts, certain tempos, if used correctly. This might be a little bro sciency, but I kind of feel like it builds denser muscle. Yeah, to- most- totally th- fake news. That is garbage. That is horseshit, Tom. <laughs> Should I leave? I <laughs> you don't have to leave. We'll remove you. Um, so here's, so here's kind of a, a, a step forward on this question. The portion of the movement where you should be extending the tempo, are we looking at, where do we see the biggest benefit in extending the tempo? Is it through the eccentric, the concentric or the isometric? Are we trying to go slow during the lengthening, the shortening, or should we be adding like lengthy pauses? I think it depends on the movement and what you're after, but I, I would say, for most people, extending the the time of the eccentric is probably most useful because that is just an often overlooked part of the movement that people will rush through. You know, yeah. let the bar drop on a bench press, let the uh, cable fly up on a um, uh, lat pull down, stuff like that. You know, just drop the weight with a lateral raise, uh, but. There's definitely some utility in, you know, pausing during uh, the uh, most shortened position for some movements, you know, like a, a glute bridge at the top of the movement or a hyperextension, you know, fully locking out. Some people won't, you know, you know, may overlook a complete tricep uh, lockout for like a tricep extension. So giving a little pause there, squeeze there stuff like that here's part here's part three of this question that i just thought of if i don't say it now i'll forget it um recently i've seen some people talking about the benefit of fast concentrics in hypertrophy do you think that's something that holds water so you know a lot of the theory being that a higher velocity concentric contraction requires greater motor unit activation is that something that we should care about on a rep by rep basis no. or are we going to get to that high threshold motor unit recruitment just by training at an accurate proximity or a, a, a sufficient proximity to failure like a two so or a three ri what, or even what sufficient people load. don't understand is like just activating the high threshold motor units is isn't enough. You have to activate and I don't want to say fatigue. I think fatigue is a byproduct of doing your effective work and getting a good stimulus, but fatigue is what takes you to those high threshold motor units. Yeah. And so like if, if it was just a matter, because the problem is, is that you're not activating those high threshold units long enough, right? Otherwise something like jumping, 
You know, we could just jump. We're using maximal motor unit recruitment with minimal load, but that, that may not be an adequate hypertrophy stimulus to somebody. And it actually is definitely not for somebody who is well-trained, right? You have to, so essentially the, when movements begin to slow down, showing us that, Hey, these high threshold motor units are fatigued like that. That's what we're kind of after. Yeah, because like we want we want that duration of that stimulus to be as long as the longer you yeah. know almost the better because there's more communication between you know all your cells and receptors at that. The point. The one thing I will say though is I do like to tell people, and you have to be careful because for some movements and some body parts, maybe not the best idea or not the best idea until you're very well like warmed up and in your groove. But I do like to tell people to lift with fast concentrics because then it becomes a lot easier to rate your RIR and um, gauge how many you have left. And especially if you're referring back to film. Oh, just based off like bar speed. Yeah. If, if you're, if you're pressing yeah. as fast as you can, you'll see it just drop off as your reps. Yeah. And you yourself. We'll even notice like, holy shit, that, that last rep was definitely slower or this rep is definitely slower. This is probably where I want to cut it this week. If that's my target, like three or four hours yeah. or something. I have seen a lot of people doing this with like, uh, one exercise that comes to mind is like hamstring curls. I saw someone doing hamstring curls with a very explosive concentric and then trying to co control that eccentric, that lengthening, it just looked challenging and paul like you said people think it's just about activating it but dom kind of clarified there it's about the duration over which those are activated mm -hmm. it's an area under the curve more than an amplitude kind of issue it's not something where you want it to go like that you want it to come up and then stay sustained for a long period of time so you have this like meaty piece under the curve yeah, yeah, that's where all the money is. Um, now you may, I, I would, I would probably bet like most things end up being equal at the end of the day, you know, like if you just have all explosive reps, um, you may do fewer reps, you know, and reach fatigue a little sooner, but like it probably totals a similar amount of total area under the curve versus like somebody that just used a more controlled pace and most of their maximal high threshold recruitment was just at the later end of the set. Yeah, I can see that being the case. All right. Last question for the day. And it's another doozy, very wide open comes from Landon rush. Landon asks, uh, what is the role or how big of a role does being a hyper responder or having elite genetics um, dictate like your end result, your end point? I think this is something that people talk about a lot. Um, the people that you see up on the Olympia stage, the ones that you see winning the hundred meter dash at the Olympics, all of that. How much of a role do, do genetics play? And then how much of a role does being a hyper responder to training play? Number one thing that I would throw out there for the person who asked this question or anyone who's really interested in this is read the book, the sports gene by Epstein, and you'll get a really, really lengthy look into genetics 
responders to training variables, things like that. But go ahead, folks. Can I just say... If you don't have good genetics, don't even bother. <laughs> no, but seriously, like, the, the, the question is kind of funny, right? Like, how, how, much, does of a, how much of a role does being a, a high responder play? Fucking everything. If you're a high responder, like, you, right? Like, that is everything. That, the biggest difference, the biggest role that anything could possibly, you know? <laughs> I think it when separates I, everybody from when I explain anything. this When I explain this question to people, I break it down into like four quadrants. So there is the very unfortunate short straw of all short straw quadrants, and that is low baseline, someone who's not very genetically gifted, and a low responder to training. They could train perfectly, as hard as possible for the rest of their life, and probably never even reach mediocrity, which is very sad to think about. On the other side of that, across from that quadrant, is the low baseline high responder. So not very genetically elite, not a good starting point, but they respond well to training. They're probably going to reach mediocre, maybe slightly above that, slightly above average. You then have your high baseline low responder to training, the genetically very gifted, but they don't respond to training very well. These are the individuals that like will be your high school all-star. They'll make it to college, but that's when they'll kind of fizzle out. And then you've got the LeBron Jameses, the Tiger Woods, the Usain Bolts of the world who are high baseline, high responder. They started genetically as elite as it gets, and they responded extremely well to training, and that's why they're the best to ever Maybe do it. Maybe even drugs too throw in some drugs there. <laughs> yeah. So when you throw PEDs into the equation, you can actually see some quadrant shifting as well. But even with, even with probably all the PEDs in the world, and you'll see these guys at the local bodybuilding shows, the low baseline, low responders, you throw high PEDs into that quadrant and they're like, cool. I won my class at this local, local show. I will say I have seen some people go from, like wow you don't have you should this isn't for you to like <laughs> the, now elite of the elite that is rare but I, I i've seen it you know um name names because i don't believe it. i i probably shouldn't name a name but <laughs> yeah, it, it was somebody that became a pro um and then i mean dude what about uh i i don't know this guy's full sort what was the guy that got kidney disease um nick tong no, 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 no. He he was a uh, pretty uh, famous. Was it Evan? No, it wasn't Evan. Um, he he has that crazy transformation that everybody lost their minds over. He looked like an average competitor, and then he was competing at like the Olympia. Uh, he has a kidney issue now. Now he's fine. He's he's jacked again. He's sponsored under Animal. Really? Yeah. Uh, he doesn't compete. Uh, um, Eric Frank Frankhauser. Uh, there's a Canadian fellow. Uh, I think he's Antoine Vaillant. No. Um, I think that's all of them. That's all. Who's the guy Frank with the giant? McGrath? Frank McGraw with the giant forearms. No, was it? Real it, was, it was Evan Santapani, right? Oh, Didn't he have like a Evan. wild transformation? He had a kidney thing for a while, right? He had a crazy had transformation. A... I, don't I don't remember a kidney thing. Yeah, he dropped out for a while. He got small from it. I don't know. Evan's a cool dude. Happened. I like Evan. I, I don't know I what his story nice. is, like where his transformation came from, but it was insane. Wasn't it? 
Whoa. Everybody is going to watch this and just be like, you have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> I think Evan had some, Evan probably had some underlying good genetics there. I don't know. Yeah. If we can, I don't know if we can chalk that one all up to, uh, you know what? I'm thinking of the wrong dude. This I'm thinking of the total. It wasn't him. Fuck. Okay. okay. I'm going to figure that sense. out one of these days. Can we delete that part of the podcast? <laughs> this is just embarrassing. Hey guys, act like you didn't even hear that. <laughs> Do you have, like, the Men in Black, like, memory wipe thing that we can use on these people? Um, I don't remember who it was, but it was a coach at UCF, and I was talking with him about, like, speed training. And he told me, if you want ponies, don't recruit donkeys. And for some reason, that has stuck with me for so long. He's like, if you want fast players, you got to recruit the fast kids. You don't, you don't go out and buy a donkey and take it to a horse race and be like, what the hell? Why isn't my, my donkey over here, Joe Burrow, why isn't he uh, Why isn't he winning this race? Like that one, Burrow, donkey? Yeah, pretty good right there. It's like nice. if you watch uh, – <laughs> so, I mean, I've got a, I've got a kid. And, Credit to uh, Jimmy on that. <laughs> so we watch – you know, my kid's in soccer. You know, Or he's, he's tried a, a number of different things. He's a he's baller, just, by the way. I see him out there. Fast. He's weaving. He's real fast. But you can see almost when they're you know, like three years old, you can kind of see the kid where you're like, oh, that's the kid. Like, that's the kid. You just watch his feet move and you're like, oh, he's just fast or he seems super coordinated. And it just goes to show like that starts to express itself sometimes pretty early. But sometimes you don't get it until late. I mean, sometimes you don't see kids that are you know really athletic until they hit high school and they kind of get through that first sort of awkward phase and they get through you know, the growth spurt and all that stuff. And then they're, you know, they're the late bloomers. Um, but genetics is, it's everything and it's everything. And it expresses itself, not just in athletics, but just in general, just anything in general, just pick something and go, why is this person good at it? There's probably a good chance that it's a mostly genetics and a lot of it's going to be work ethic. And I think people really obsess. Do I have the genetics for it? Am I a hyper responder? Like, am I going to get, it's like these, like that, that ship has set sail and you are on board and it's going wherever it wants to. And you, you are not in control of this anymore. So if your if your passion behind bodybuilding, weightlifting, whatever your endeavor is, is being curtailed or is rooted in like, do I have the genetics for this? You might want to pick something that you enjoy a little bit more because I always tell people this, like if you had the genetics to be one of those elites, you wouldn't be asking me if you had the genetics to be one of those elites. <laughs> it's it would so have true. made itself very, very apparent by now. I, I think a lot of people mistake genetics for hyper responsive res results. I think yeah. people think, they have bad genetics because they're not hyper responsive. That doesn't mean their shape of their musculature or anything is poor genetically. They think because they lift, do whatever, they don't respond as fast. They think they have bad genetics. Yeah, that genetics kind of dictates the starting point, right? Like there was, we did the podcast with uh, Coach Storms from UCF, and he was showing us a picture of like a 17-year-old. No, he wasn't 17. He was like 15. He was a high school freshman, and he was like 6'2", 235, and he was pretty lean. And the kid had never lifted a weight in his life. It's like that right there is, that's genetics. Now, how well that guy responds to training, which is 
probably going to be really well is going to be the hyper or non-responder to training. The the book, Sports Gene, has a chapter. I think it's the second chapter in the book. It's called A Tale of Two Jumpers. And it follows a gentleman from Sweden who – I think it's from Sweden – who jumped, who trained for high jump his entire life. And then a Bahamian who trained for six months and broke his world record. So there's one guy who trained for 15 years to set the world record, a guy who trained for 16 months and broke his world record in basketball shoes. The guy who broke the world record – in basketball shoes, never jumped higher than he did that day. So he was just born with that ability, whereas the other individual slowly responded to training better and better and built it up. So there's kind of two camps that you can be in there. I think, Ryan, I think you and I talked about this forever ago, you know, kind of when you notice whether or not you have the genetics or not, you can kind of compare yourself to your friends. And a lot of us, probably went to the gym the first time with other people. Like when I got started, it was like four of my buddies and me went to the Bally total fitness all together. And then I would just look at how everybody else was progressing. And I'd be like, Oh, so I put on like 20 pounds. How much you guys put on? They're like, Oh, like three or four. And I'm like, Oh, okay. This is weird. And I think it's that it's that you can kind of compare yourself to everybody. It, it's weird because when you first get started, you are comparing yourself to everyone else, but at the end of the day, even that might be kind of a poor gauge of progress because who knows what's going on? Like all your friends might have terrible genetics. You might just have average genetics. So it's, it's really tough to determine whether or not you're a hyper responder. But if you're six foot 10 and you're 14 years old, genetics are on your side to either play basketball or be an offensive lineman. That's genetics. It doesn't matter if you're a hyper responder or not. You've got a giant skeleton. Congratulations. You're probably going to make millions. Start hooping. Start hooping ASAP. I had that same thing when I was a kid, went to the gym. I had been, you know, I had probably been training for like two years at this point. I shouldn't say kid. I think I was like 17 at the time. And I had a friend drop into the gym with me his first day ever. And I was like, oh, I'm a flex on him. And I pulled like a 355 deadlift and he had never deadlifted before in his life. So I showed him what I thought at the time was the appropriate form, which, you know, was horrible form. And he pulled like 385 or something, and I was like, oh, some people just got it a little bit different than I do. Some people – and I don't think – I think that honestly might have been his only day of lifting in his life. He was just like, all right, I win. I'm going to go home. I'm done with this. So I live with one of these weird people, um, and she competed one time, has ever competed one time, and won her pro card – on her first shot out. So she won the novice and this was, you know, it's a, it's a drug tested show where they allow you to just walk in and get a pro card right off the bat. But she competed one time, got her pro card, beat a nice lady who at the time I would have been like, you know, if she won, that would have been like, okay, that's cool. We got second. That's all right. Let's leave. So, you know, she beats everybody and then never wants to do it again. She's like, oh, I'm good on that. So there's just these people out there. They're, they're actually a bodybuilder's worst nightmare. Because you've been training for a really long time, you get hyped up for this show, you're prepared for it, and somebody shows up that this is just the thing they were built to do. Yeah, and then I think, too, a lot of genetically blessed people rely way too much on it, and their work ethic is shit. That is that is very common. Like, yeah. I've experienced that with a lot of fucking genetically blessed people. And you Isn't just that going on right now? Like, with, do you uh, know what you could be? <laughs> Isn't that going on right now with uh, Keon, right? Is that 
can we assume that that's what's going on? He just has amazing genetics, but there might be some shortcomings there when it comes to work ethic or just the, the mental fortitude to just stick to the plan. I yeah, and I think they just rely way too much on what they were blessed with. And they think it can, you know, outwork their poor work ethic. All right, Landon, I hope that answers your question on hyper-responders and genetics. You, sir, have got both going for you, you big, handsome man. Folks, that's going to wrap up another Q&A episode of the GPP. It's been fun, as always. Guys, thanks for hanging out with me. If you are watching this video right now and you haven't done so already, drop that like, that comment, that subscribe. Let us know how much you love us. Paul <laughs> <all> just left. <laughs> we'll see you on the next one. And stay gifted. Someone say bye for him. Bye.